So we come to the part of the conference when um, <clears throat> your questions are um, on the table. So um, it's a little bit like seminary now. Um, the lectures have been given, and uh, it's time for you to ask your questions. We have a lot of questions, more than I uh, can ever remember, which means that either uh, you've been listening really well, there's been some pro provocative speeches, or you're desirous to learn more. So hopefully it's all of those. And we will go in rapid fire uh, forward here. Some of these esteemed men, they tried to twist my arm to see these questions beforehand. Um, and uh, a few managed to see a few, but most of them are going to be a surprise here. But we're going to answer them very quickly. I'm asking the brothers here to take about 30 seconds um, or, or maybe a minute um, if you really need it. And we'll see if we can get through all of them. Uh, we're going to go till about quarter after uh, or maybe a few minutes later. And um, yeah, so thank you for submitting these questions. We'll start here with a question for Dr. Barrett. What is your view of the Christian Seder meals and celebrations that some evangelical churches are now doing as part of their Holy Week services? I'm against it. No, ser seriously, if, if we take the book of Hebrews seriously, uh, all of the Old Testament feasts and celebrations were ceremonial as picture prophecies of the Lord Jesus. As picture prophecies, as any prophecy, it's been fulfilled. So I'm not looking for another virgin to conceive and bear a son, nor am I looking for another sheep to be sacrificed or even to go through the uh, rigmarole of worshiping uh, in that way. I believe it's been fulfilled. I think it's a transgression of Hebrews. Okay, thank you. Dr. McWilliams, what is being used instead of the merits of Christ, and are there other ways of saying the merits of Christ without using the exact phrase? Well, it depends upon context, of course. There are many churches that do. There are many. There's. It depends upon context, of course. There are many churches in which now the substitutionary atonement is not preached at all, or it's minimized, and it's not popular to speak about blood atonement. And so, what happens in many of those churches is that nothing is said. There are others that are leaning towards other views, other so-called theories of atonement, which I argue today are not really theories of atonement at all. And so compounded with that, groups like Federal Vision that deny justifying righteousness on the basis of the atoning work of Christ, there sim simply is in some places a dearth of preaching of the propitiatory work of Christ. Very good. Thank you. Uh, Brother Jonas, what is your biggest ticket to unceasing joy despite trials and your own sin? The biggest ticket would be to gaze upon Christ continually. 
um, beholding him in all of his beauty, uh, examining all of his attributes, and being in constant doxology. That will um, increase your joy beyond measure. Thank you very much. For Dr. Gibson, if the them in Jesus' prayer, forgive them, includes Herod, Pilate, etc., isn't Jesus making an ineffectual prayer? Uh, what I tried to say in the lecture today was I think it's like the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is to be preached indiscriminately to all, but it uh, saves only the elect. And I think that prayer, you know, when we pray for sinners to be saved, um, uh, we're praying a prayer that I think can be indiscriminate, but we're ultimately looking for the Lord to save his elect. And I think Jesus' prayer can be put into that category. I'm not saying this is the only way to interpret that verse, but that's the way that I'm reading it at this point in my understanding, that it is a, an indiscriminate prayer that will be effective for the elect. So, was it ineffective? No. It's, that's like saying preaching the gospel indiscriminately to all is ineffective because everyone who hears it doesn't get saved. I think the same argument could be made there. Very good. Thank you. Thank you for your um, uh, brief answers, too. Dr. Beakey, I'm new to this rich theology, and I'm almost overwhelmed at all the wonderful resources and doctrines to know, but where should I start? Start with the Puritans. <laughs> no. um, I think you should look in your life at the areas that you feel you have most need. If you have slight views of sin, start with a book like Thomas Watson, Mischief of Sin. If you have distant views of Christ, start with a book like Christ Our Mediator by Thomas Goodwin. I mean, start with books that are a little simpler maybe than Goodwin, but look at the subject areas that you have the most need, pick out the best books, the classics on those areas, and, and, and read them. Very good. Thank you. Dr. Neely, Neely I aspire, aspire to the pastorate, but am unsure of the wise, meek, and biblical way to pursue this. In a culture where you simply attend seminary and send a resume out until you get a job, how do I match the biblical pattern I see of a man being trained, discipled by elders in his church? Uh, where would seminary fit into this? Should I wait for elders to affirm my desires before attending a seminary? Well, this is a very personal question, of course, with, which needs, I think, um, sensitive pastoral answer. First, I would say, do you wrestle with the call that the Lord has placed in your life? Do you seek discernment? And there, in the counsel of many, there is wisdom. So if your elders recognize gifts and the call, maybe you could apply to a seminary for further training. But even there, I know of students that wrestled with the call and even wrestled with applying to a seminary because they were afraid is it their own way or is it God's way? Mm 
And therefore I would say, wait upon the Lord. And maybe there are times that you go with fear and trembling, but wait on the Lord that he opened the way for you, so that uh, if you come into the seminary, that he, first of all, will equip you. And for that, he uses professors and teachers and elders to equip you further and prepare you for the pastorate. Thank you. Uh, here's a question on eschatology, and I'm asking this to Dr. Timmer, even though it says uh, it would like to hear from all of us. What are each of your eschatological views, pre, post, or amillennial? I think that would take the rest of our time, so Dr. Timmer, please, succinctly. Amill. And why? That would take a longer answer. Um, a short answer, I think, would be that I, that's how I see the New Testament, uh, especially with respect to Old Testament prophecy, saying how things work out. So I'm trying to follow that example, follow that way of interpreting, especially the OT, and work my way forward. Okay, very good. Dr. Beakey, could you please expound on the three ways in which Genesis 3 is the red chapter? Right. Well, the first way is the gospel in verse 15, which is, of course, the focus of my text, that the seed of the woman would get the victory over the seed of the serpent. The second way is in verse 20. Uh, I didn't expound that very, very much, but that's where Adam, after he hears all the curses, in addition to verse 15, and the last curse is, Dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. So he hears the message of death, and he immediately turns to his wife and says, Eve, which means life, living, which shows that he actually, that the promise of verse 15 jumped out at him, and he saw that in the midst of all the curses and death, there is, there is gospel life, even though he didn't have it very clearly yet. And then immediately after he cries out, life, living, God takes an anim animals in front of him. There's been no death at all. And in verse 21, God kills an animal. I mean, that's huge to see death for the first time and close them with the shedding of blood pointing to the gospel, the red blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Dr. McWilliams, is it appropriate to pray as an adopted son of God uh, with uh, ado uh, adoptee intimacy in corporate prayer, such as at a prayer meeting in church? In, in any time that we pray, we should pray with intimacy to the Father. There are certain things that might not be appropriate in public prayer for other reasons, but we should cry out with all of the joy and in the extremity of our need with dependence upon our Heavenly Father as the Spirit cries, Abba, Father. Very good. Thank you. Dr. Barrett, does forgiveness or pardon include both propitiation and expiation? What is the difference? I'm not sure that I would say that forgiveness and pardon includes propitiation or expiation. But I would say that propitiation and expiation is the foundation, the basis, the ground by which we know forgiveness and by which we can know the pardon of sin. 
So without the shedding of the blood, there's no remission. And uh, Christ shed his blood, satisfying God's wrath. Christ shed his blood, taking away the sins of his people, which is the foundation of forgiveness. So uh, I would reframe the question just a little bit, uh, making sure that the blood propitiation, expiation is the foundation uh, of what forgiveness is. And the difference between the two, I think you mentioned that in your talk. But just The difference between propitiation yeah. and expiation? Yes, propitiation is the Godward effect of the atonement, um, that God is angry with sin, and in his declaration uh, of the gospel, the way to have that wrath appeased, satisfied, uh, is the blood shedding. So that's propitiation. Propitiation is the Godward effect of the atonement. Expiation is the manward and the sin uh, focus. Uh, the sin is washed away. The guilt is gone. Uh, so you have the blood affecting the Father first, and because the Father is propitiated, there is expiation. And I would make it very clear here, uh, as was illustrated by the two goats on the uh, Day of Atonement, you can't have one without the other. Propitiation guarantees. And for you Calvinists out there, uh, we often talk about the limited atonement or the design of the atonement. This is essential to that question, uh, that those two things are inseparably linked. You can't have propitiation without expiation. Again, there's no maybe gospel. Thank you. Dr. Gibson, if the identity of the Son of God as the divine Son was not fully contained in Jesus in the Incarnation and did not change in his identity, how was it an emptying of himself, Philippians 2? Uh, I think the emptying of himself in Philippians 2 is not to do with Christ emptying himself as, of his divinity in any way. I think it was to do with uh, emptying himself in taking on the form of a servant, actually in the f form of humiliation. Um, so he uh, takes on the form of a servant, undergoes uh, a life of suffering even unto death, death on a cross. And so that's what the emptying con consists in, not in any sense emptying himself of his glory or his divinity or anything like that. Okay, very good. Uh, Brother Jonas, I'm a 28-year-old. I appreciate all the speakers' talks, and I know the talks are truth, but I feel that they are not as interesting as watching movies, hanging out with friends, and reading. What suggestion will you give me? Should I attend this kind of conference again? Thank you. Well, I think they did provide for you to register just by using that little um, <laughs> computer thing at the back. But um, yes, um, you pretty much are going to be what, well, you're going to become what you feed on. If you feed on foolishness, you will have a very, very um, shallow life. Um, it, it does require some semblance of discipline to, to, to present yourself under the word with consistency to actually read. I know the culture is not too much of a reading culture these days, you know. <laughs> um, there's a more people uh, will go for the social media um, time-wasting um, uh, devices rather than to read. But in order to develop yourself spiritually, 
Um, your spiritual disciplines must be maintained, which would include the regular attendance under the preached word and um, certainly in reading quality material. And uh, that's how we will grow. So add, add, now you have to add yes, come to the conference. Yes, 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 come to the conference. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Dr. Neely, would you please describe a moment that you enjoy God today to help me understand how to find joy in God every day and night? Thank you. In one of the sermons or lectures, whatever you call it, there was this description of a sorrow after God. That's my words, but that was kind of the essence what was said. And it brought back a moment in my life that, that I know this, when the Lord began to work in my heart, that there was this sorrow after God because I grieved him. Not afraid of the punishment, but grieved him. And that moment, when I was sitting here in the pew, was a moment of joy that the Lord reminded me of, say, the first love. Do you remember that time? Eh? The first love? And this deep sorrow after sin. And that was just a joyful moment. Thank you for sharing that. Dr. Timmer. In the Psalms, David and other writers always pray that God will deliver them from those who hate me and enemies. Can this be applied to Christians today as meaning our spiritual enemies and warfares? Similar verbiages are used in other books of the Old Testaments. What method of interpretation is valid and at the same time can bring encouragements and guidance to Christian life? I would say that yes, uh, we can still have flesh and blood enemies, they, were, they are at the same time not our primary enemies. Uh, and I would add, it's probably easier to fixate on our flesh and blood enemies, which would not be what I would suggest. Um, so I would begin with, with what you think are the spiritual dangers and challenges that are behind this difficulty, the, the enemies, the challenges that you are facing. Um, it's a little harder for me to answer the hermeneutic question uh, in, a, in a broad scope, but that's, I would start with putting, uh, like Paul says in Ephesians 6, focus first on spiritual enemies and uh, leave your interpersonal enemies for later or never. Okay, thank you, Dr. Timmer. Dr. Beakey, Puritan writers oftentimes found the promise of God wide and profound. For example, Bunyan's Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ which exposits the verse, whoever comes to me I will in no wise cast out. While it brings immense comfort and encouragement, how can we be sure that I'm not applying the promise of God too broadly? What kind of method of interpretation is Bunyan or many other Puritans using here? Yeah, the, Bunyan, the, the Puritans and Bunyan in particular um, really believed with all their heart that the offer of grace comes to every single hearer, every single reader, and that God is sincere in this, what, what they call promiscuous offer, that it comes to everyone sincerely from the heart of God. Of course, only the elect will actually come. But what this does is it puts the responsibility on man 
to come, even though man can't come, that he cries out for God to do within him what he cannot do for himself. But what they're saying is, election is the friend of sinners, and God draws his people to himself, and he will never turn any way anyone who comes to him. So in Scripture, the sovereignty of God and responsibility of man, the Puritans would say, are not in tension with each other. In our minds, we quickly put them in attention. And hence, John six thirty seven: All that the Father hath given me shall come to me. Election. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Man's responsibility, free offer of grace. And so in the Puritans, there's no tension between those two things. It's like Spurgeon said uh, when he reflected on the Puritans. He said, the Puritans taught that a train runs along two tracks. God's responsibility, I mean God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And as you look out from from the front car of the train... You see two tracks. But if you look in the distance, those two become one. And he said, in eternity, it will all become clear, all become one. But right now, you are responsible to come to Christ at this moment, no matter what your spiritual condition is. But God is also sovereign and able and willing to bring you. So those two things come together. So whenever you start thinking along the lines, well, God invites me to come, but maybe, you know, maybe he won't receive me or anything like that. No, no, no. God will receive anyone who comes to him. The problem is we don't want to come to him. And so that's where we need to cry out for God's help. Draw me, O Lord, and I will run after thee. Okay, question for Dr. Gibson. The tabernacle represents the holy dwelling of God. It was otherworldly. What are the implications, if any, for modern-day church buildings? I'm thinking of, the church, of churches going into debt or imposing financial burdens on members versus being good stewards of financial gifts. <laughs> I, I think the church primarily obviously, is the people of God. I was brought up as a missionary kid in Tanzania, so I have worshipped in villages in Tanzania under a sackcloth at the noonday sun, under this little sackcloth in the back end of nowhere in Africa. And in those moments, I am reminded that the church is not about a building. Uh, It's about the people of God. So I think that's the first thing we need to establish. That said, where possible, uh, I think it's important to build buildings to house the gathering of God's people that are permanent, prominent, and that are actually, you know, show some majesty about them. So, you know, look how great this building is and has been and has served this congregation for so many years because people put time and money into it. And uh, I think we should not think in the short term when it comes to building buildings. I think we need to think 100 years down the line. How could this building serve a congregation for 100 years? That's that's maybe, it might sound strange, but I I think we should put the money in and the time for something that will last uh, 100 years. Um, Because buildings matter. Buildings are prominent. In Sydney, Australia, where I went to theological college, they, they started doing a lot of church planting in the time I was there, which was great. 
and they were hiring schools, arts theaters, and all that. COVID came, and you're not in control of where you meet. But when you own your building, you're more in control of, of when you meet and what you can do. And so I don't think we should underestimate the importance of the physical presence of a church in a community by having a building. Very good. Thank you. Uh, keep the microphone here. We've got quite a few for you. We'll just give you one more here first. Um, is it accurate to say that a key component of the grace of Christ was his descent into hell as the Apostles' Creed puts it. If so, what does that actually mean? Since the eternal nature of hell is what makes it so terrible. Also, what is the scriptural basis for the Creed's statement that he descended into hell? Uh, there's been, others can add to this maybe, in my limited knowledge, I think there's been two main views within the Reformed tradition. Calvin, uh, I think, argued that what it means is on the cross, in those three hours of darkness, Christ descended into hell. He experienced our hell for us. He propitiated the Father's wrath. So that was his hell, and that was the descent into hell. Uh, the Westminster Divines view um, is that he persisted in death for a time. So he was buried in Sheol in the grave. He descended into hell, Hades, the grave, uh, and that's what it means. Um, yeah, so I think um, that's how I would argue it. I'm, maybe there's more views in the Reformed tradition, but I, I hope I'm being accurate there that Calvin views it as on the cross, and people like the divines view it as he remained under death for three days. May I just make one quote in relation to the previous comment about buildings? Winston Churchill, after the Second World War, Parliament building in London had been bombed and they were talking about redesigning it to not have the sort of party in power and the opposition opposite them that was going to be more circular, more conciliatory as they made their debates. And this was going back and forth. And Winston Churchill said, no, we will put it back exactly the way it was because first we shape our buildings and then our buildings shape us. And I think, back to the point that we should think seriously about the way we shape our buildings. This pulpit sits in the front and center of this church. It was first shaped that way, and now, as the congregation, you're shaped by the fact that the pulpit is always in the center. So first we shape our buildings, then our buildings shape us. So, Thank you. Thank you. We're going through these questions fast, so I think we can uh, applaud our speakers for sure, that. Sure. Sure. Yes. Oh. I just want to say, uh, Daniel Hyde has written a book on the descent into hell and actually shows ways in which Westminster and Kelvin don't differ really all that much, that there is a way of har harmonizing them both. And that was published by RHB about four years ago. So if you're really interested in that question, it's a great little book, 75 pages to read on Christ's ascension into hell. Do we have it here? Uh, probably not. Look for that. You can just order it. A few people had other questions they were going to bring to me. If you do and they're urgent, feel free to slip them to me as we're, as we're listening. Uh, here's a question for Brother Jonas. Uh, what are some doctrinal errors that you see in modern evangelicalism today regarding the presentation of the gospel? 
Well, for one, many are questioning the sufficiency of the gospel. And one good example of that is um, when uh, pastors become the poster child of the wokeness and um, imagining that social engineering of some kind is, is the way to impact the world. They no longer believe that the person and work of Christ is enough. So I believe that is one of the major um, compromises in our generation. I, 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 we could list a whole lot, but that one is prominent in my mind. Okay, very good. Thank you. Dr. Neely, when pastors issue an outward call to repentance and trust in Jesus Christ, should the necessity of the effectual call be included as well? Well, friends, if you uh, maybe remember, um, at Puritan Reform Seminary, we aim by God's grace to train men for ministry in a biblical, reformed, experiential, and practical way. Um, I think my first question was more a practical question, a pastoral question. My second question was more an experiential question. While I'm talking... I think let me let me go to the canons of Dort. I think that will answer it more precisely than than I can uh, summarize it here. In in Article Three in in the canons of Dort, which is the first about election, and that men may be brought to believe God mercifully sent the messengers of this most joyful tidings, which is that God sent his only begotten son for our salvation, these most joyful tidings to whom he will, and at what time he pleaseth, by whose ministry men are called to repentance and faith in Christ crucified. How then, this is the biblical answer, biblical part of the answer, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher, and how shall they preach except they be sent? Do you hear? The outward call of the gospel aims that the inward call is answered by the grace of God, by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, applied in the hearts of a sinner, called to Christ. Thank you. Dr. Barrett, your Hebrews 9 text mentioned errors or unintentional sins in verse 7. How should we understand personally and practically the difference between intentional and unintentional sins, especially in light of Numbers 15, which says there is no atonement for the former? The, first of all, as I recall, the reference in, in Numbers uh, literally is the sin of the high hand. Is that right? Uh, the sin of the high hand, which uh, would speak of that which is a deliberate uh, and a consciously deliberate and intentional uh, transgression against the clear uh, declaration of the Lord. Uh, 
those that commit such sins, first of all, I don't think are really particularly interested in uh, knowing forgiveness from those sins. Uh, and that certainly is to be avoided. Um, intentional, unintentional, that, that's hard to, uh, sin is sin, all right? Sin is sin. Uh, ignorance of the law is no excuse. We know that particular expression. Uh, and that certainly is the case when it comes to our relationship to the law uh, of God. Um, so I'm not sure that the statement in Hebrews really re- would parallel what the Numbers passage is talking about. I think those are two different things. Uh, but the focus there in Hebrews is upon the fact that uh, there is the sin that's been committed. Uh, and regardless of whether it was thought out or whatever that means, uh, is really not the issue, I think, if, that's, if I understand the question. Okay, very good. Uh, Dr. Beeky, how much should eschatology inform or impact your overall view of the gospel? Wow. Uh, that's a hard question to answer in one minute, but there are several, several ways. Um, our view of eschatology will, 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 will have its dynamic played out in, in the now, not yet of, of our New Testament age. And so um, now we have the gospel, yet we do not realize the fullness of the gospel that we will realize in the age to come where our hearts will be focused on the gospel perfectly and fully and freely forever. So that's one aspect. In terms of the millennium and the A-mail, pre-mail, post-mail, I, I believe that the A-mail view um, is, is, is truest, in a sense, to the gospel because the A-mail view is teaching us that in the resurrection of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is now spread to the whole world. The millennium has arrived. Satan is chained because the gospel goes to all the nations. And so our views of eschatology um, actually give an optimism to the present age that the gospel is everywhere. So pre- and post-mill often look at amill and say, well, you don't believe in any millennium. And so in, in, in the book I just submitted to Crossway, in the eschatology section, Paul Smalley and I are saying, we, we can't deny the word amil, but ah sounds negative, and we want to call the amil position inaugurated eschatology. It's inaugurated already in this New Testament age, and so it gives an optimism to the future as well. We're in the millennium now, and the gospel goes everywhere, and we're longing for the millennium to break through in everlasting glory. Thank you very much. Dr. Timmer, how should you pray if you're struggling with assurance? I would answer first probably persistently, and secondly, I would say expectantly. Um, The only way to resolve that question is to communion with the Lord and to ask him to uh, strengthen your faith, to ask him to give you eyes to see where you are and where you need to be. And regardless of if, whether you were struggling with assurance or not, um, 
the solution is always the same. So I would simply fix your eyes on Christ, trust his promises, uh, pray, and God will make clear uh, where you are and will lead you to himself. Very good. Thank you. Dr. McWilliams, could you briefly explain Christus Victor and how it denies the atonement of Christ? The Christus Victor view of the atonement, I have argued, is not really about the atonement at all, but sets aside not simply complements a biblical view of substitutionary atonement is the view that Christ's work on the cross brought about a victory and that that victory, regardless especially in view of modern views of Christus Victor, regardless of prior views regarding the substitutionary atonement, is all about a nonviolent atonement. Actually, there is a book that was published not long ago called The Nonviolent Atonement that sets aside the whole idea of substitutionary atonement and simply argues that the victory of faith, the victory of resurrection is what the cross was all about. It was, in the medieval period, a, um, connected with the idea of the defeat of Satan and satanic forces. And certainly, Christ did defeat Satan and satanic forces, and Colossians makes that especially clear. But to say that that was what the atonement fundamentally was about rather than propitiation and expiation is very problematic. And so Christus Victor, again, there are elements of truth in all of these various so-called theories of atonement. But in that they are not ultimately Godward, explaining how God himself how the atonement relates to God himself in satisfying justice. These various views of atonement, including this one, are not really views of atonement at all. So the Christus Victor view has elements of truth in it that are biblical, but it is not it is not the atonement of Jesus Christ. The atonement is substitutionary and propitiatory. Thank you. Pastor Jonas, how in our five senses can we continually stay fixated on Christ and alert, aware against the enemy flesh and world? <laughs> how do I, well, our five senses... Well, um, I would say that uh, in relation to staying fixated on Christ, we should be thinking in terms of the means of grace, the ordinary means of grace. And I guess they, in a sense, um, engage the senses in that, um, especially like in worship, 
um, when we come into the house of God to worship him, following that regulative principle of worship, we um, uh, see the word with the ordinances, uh, sacraments. Uh, we uh, hear the word uh, declared and we um, sing the word, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And uh, we pray the word, you know, with adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplications. So I guess in worship, he has already designed how he wants to be worshipped. And as long as we engage our senses in that, that way, we will be exalting him. Okay. Uh, how about the touch and the smell? You, you talked about the smell in your sermon, but how, how would you speak about that? <laughs> Uh, touch and the smell. Uh, I guess in, in, uh, sensitivity is what we're talking about with the smell, being able, be, being, having discernment um, and not losing our um, ability to detect the approach of error by being biblically um, well-fed. Very good. What comes to mind is the, uh, the fragrance of Christ, maybe? So, uh, uh, Dr. Gibson, you noted that Christ uttered a word of remission and not a word of vengeance in his prayer of forgiveness on the cross. And yet, when he returns on the day of judgment, he will utter a word of vengeance. Is this word of, forgive, is this word of forgiveness demonstrative of what we read in Romans 2, verse 4? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness leads you to repentance could you speak more to Christ's forgiveness and his vengeance? If I've understood the question correctly, I would put the first saying from the cross in that category of uh, Romans 2, that in a sense Christ is offering forgiveness. He is delaying his judgment uh, on people. Um, as regards his vengeance, I think his vengeance is delayed, and it's delayed because we're in the age of grace, in the age of the gospel, and uh, I think the first saying on the cross typifies that, that he, in the moment where he could call down judgment, he could call on his Father to bring the angels and judge the people, uh, he does not do that. Instead, he offers them forgiveness through his prayer. Uh, the vengeance will be when he returns in glory with the holy angels uh, to judge the living and the dead. Uh, 2 Timothy speaks about that. But in the meantime, Paul says to Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season until Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. So I think we need to hold those two aspects of Christ's work of forgiveness and vengeance uh, related to his first coming and to his second coming. Um, but we should not also presume that in the first age of grace, in this age now, after his first coming, that he does not, as the Father's judge at, at the right hand, he, does not, he, he still is providentially working on the earth and bringing judgments in various forms. But the final judgment will be when he returns. Okay, thank you very much. We'll do two more questions. Uh, briefly. Dr. Neely, you mentioned that I don't want to approach the text grammatically or historically, but personally. What do you mean by personally? How is this different from seeing 
the one meaning of the text? Can this open the door for, I feel this text means X or Y? Well, I think Ephesians 2 verse um, 1 to 10 has a lot of pronouns. You. You. We. Us. I think that makes it very personal. I can, I could have chosen a complete doctrinal approach. Heidelberg Catechism, misery, deliverance, gratitude, work it out, propositional. We would all say, very good doctrine. But it's about you, God, Christ. So, I choose this approach and to make it hopefully personal, also for myself, that uh, if the Lord, the, the living word of the living God speaks to us, we are not making a general, we are not making a systematic theology. The Lord speaks to you and me. Thank you. Dr. Beeky, the last question. Does God love sinners or does God hate sinners? We have scripture verses saying both. Yeah. Um, God does not only hate the sin, but hates sinners when they live in rebellion against him. So by nature, you are children of wrath, even as others, till you are, are born again. So there's a sense in which God loves his people from all eternity by decree, but that decree needs to be realized in the moment of regeneration and faith. And that's why it's so important that there's a transfer from self-made darkness into his marvelous light. So it's not right to simply say, well, God loves sinners but hates the sin. The Psalms are very plain on that. When you persist in sinful rebellion, there's a hatred of God that comes out against you. And that doesn't mean that God isn't willing or able to save you. It just means that you should realize the urgency that you shouldn't be able to live one more day without surrendering yourself to him, crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And um, I want to also add a, just a little, little PS to uh, Dr. Jonas's wonderful answer about using the means of grace and the five senses. Uh, Calvin illustrates that wonderfully well with the Lord's Supper. Um, he says, God comes down in the Lord's Supper and touches all five of our senses so that we can worship Christ fully and freely. Christ comes so low to, to move our senses so that he can lift us up to sit with Christ in heavenly places. So we smell the bread. We taste it. It's the bread and the wine. We taste it. We touch it. We hear the word as we're eating the bread and wine, and we see it. And so there is a sense, even in one particular means of grace, that God activates all five of our senses to worship Christ alone. Just to add a thought to the uh, love-hate uh, question that Dr. Beeky answered uh, very well, but I think it's also important to realize 
that the biblical words for love and hate are not emotional terms. And I think sometimes we look at those expressions and define it in terms of our feeling, in terms of uh, that emotion. They're primarily words of the will, uh, primarily volitional words. It's a sense in which to love is to choose. To hate is to reject. So it's not saying that God has this feeling of badness, if you will, uh, toward the sinner. He rejects the sinners, uh, and he chooses his people. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Chose Jacob, rejected Esau. So if you keep in mind that volitional aspect, in addition to what Dr. Beeky has said, I think that will help answer that question. I'd like, to add one, I'd like to add one thing about the Christus Victor viewpoint that needs to be made plain, and that is that the modern view of Christus Victor has as its burden describing substitutionary atonement as divine child abuse. That's what the view is all about today. So, Very good. Thank you, uh, dear audience, for these questions, for a lot of them, a lot of good questions, too. And we thank the professors and all our speakers for these very able answers. As we heard earlier today, we, we, um, we have tests at seminary. It sounds to me like you've put these men to the test, and hopefully they've all passed. Okay. Can I just... Uh, yeah. Yeah.